We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Excited to introduce our two guests, or one guest. Directly from the bar, we have the man, the myth, the legend, Frank Shapara. Thank you. And we have Tom Jessup, the president yep. of Fidelity Digital Assets. So uh, if you guys can get seated, we'll Great. get started. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're very excited to host this event. It's the first one that we've done live of the year. Tom Jessup. President of Fidelity Digital Assets. The man who Coindesk said could bridge the gap between Wall Street and crypto. Fidelity Digital Assets has an interesting history, I think. If we look back, harken upon when Abigail Johnson, I remember I was at Business Insider, I was just starting covering the space, and the Wall Street Journal reported that she said at an event, I love this stuff. And then in January 2018, you joined the company. Yep. And then in April 2018, a young, bushy-tailed, bright-eyed reporter named Frank Chaparro <laughs> reported that Fidelity, a household name in American investing, is plotting a big move into cryptocurrency trading and custody. And uh, the report fell a little bit short in terms of exactly what you guys were doing. But you were indeed plotting all this time, figuring out what you guys we're going to set your sights on. And then in October, you announced the launch of Fidelity Digital Assets. And here we are over a year later in custody, trading services. Walk us through that journey. Yeah, I mean, going back, coming back to the Abbey comment, I mean, you look, I've been at Fidelity for two years, and the one thing I've been really impressed with is the, uh, the amount of capital, in, uh, both financially human, that the firm spends on innovation. Um, and you know, the one uh, interesting factoid is uh, we have a wall on the third floor of our building where we have the Fidelity uh, Center for Applied Technology. And in the early 90s, Fidelity was one of the first retail brokers to actually uh, push an online trading solution. Now, I don't think many people in this room probably were not born back then, but that, that was pushed to clients in the form of a three and a half inch floppy disk and a modem connection to trade online with Fidelity. This is preceding the web by about three or four years. 
So, you know, the firm has had a long history of innovating. And so when Abby um, first thought about or learned about blockchain uh, and this idea of frictionless capital markets, that was really sort of the tagline that went along with blockchain technology that spun up a, uh, a fair bit of activity in two directions. One is understanding digital assets and cryptocurrencies. I think the other one, which persists to this day, is understanding the application of distributed ledger technology to other problems and other business opportunities in financial services and elsewhere. So an enterprise track and a crypto track. And um, you know, I think many of you have heard the story about accepting Bitcoin in the cafeteria. Uh, we've been mining Bitcoin since 2015. Pretty Apparently, much. Abby had a miner in her office. Yes. If you came to our building, you would see, uh, you know, ant miners several generations old, you know, propping open doors and, um, <laughs> you know, on uh, people's credenzas and stuff. I actually don't have one. You know, I, I don't know why, but no one's given me one. I'm, I'm a, bit, uh, a bit upset by that. But um, there's been a long history of innovating and learning about the space. And um, when we started the business or thought about, you know, at the start of 18, we said, okay, we've, we have a collection of these assets. We can, we built a wallet. Uh, we have some rudimentary trading capability. Um, we built some interfaces and applications around some of these functions. What direction do we go? And um, as many of us painfully remember, that was sort of when the, the peak of the bubble was tipping over. And uh, when we sat back and said, which direction do we go? Do we think we go retail? Do we go institutional? I think our view is that uh, the institutional mountain is a little bit harder to climb, but probably at, the, at that time was a better uh, uh, representation or manifestation of what we built and where we could probably apply that with the most effect. Uh, and so that's what we did. We started assembling people, some of these latent capabilities we built for internal use, and assembled that into the business, which is now Fidelity Digital Assets. When was the decision made that it would be institutional versus retail? Because I remember when I put out that report, it was actually based on, this is, this is breaking on the scoop, it was based on a job ad internally right. that was sent to me by an FA at Fidelity that I knew through a, a mutual friend. So not even anyone Are associated. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. But at the point, it was kind of, that was, you know, April 2018. It was, again, yes, is it retail through a uh, mechanism through which people can buy or sell Bitcoin, or is it institutional custody? So when did that decision fully? Uh, I would was say it was made? March of 18. Sure. Yeah, it was pretty quick. Okay. It was and so... Then once that decision was made, it was hiring, it was bringing on the folks to execute. Steam ahead, building out the rest of the, uh, the capability stack, thinking about our licensing approach, mm -hmm. um, thinking about the trust license in the state of New York, uh, which we'd started thinking about way back then, and, uh, and then thinking about how best to you know, leverage the fact that we already do business with lots of institutions at Fidelity uh, as to how we can sort of go to market with this new capability. Did you anticipate when you announced the launch of custody how crowded the market would be now in, in, in December 2019? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that, you know, custody is, uh, I think it's a, it's a base requirement. It's, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's the base of the pyramid. It's like the thing you have to deliver for people to have a sense of safety and soundness. And then everything else evolves on top of that, whether it's trading or other services we build. So I think we knew that custody would be a, uh, an integral part of anyone's offering. Um, and knew that it would be part of a much broader strategy uh, and solution set for customers, but really where we had to start. That was, that was pretty obvious. I mean, look, competitive markets, the market's still quite small in terms of uh, AUM, and so uh, it's quite competitive. But, you know, we are an organization that's been around for decades. We have a long-term view in the space, and we're not necessarily thinking about the next 18 to 24 months. We're really thinking about 
three plus years in terms of the evolution of the space and uh, you know what, what it potentially means for financial services writ large. Well, before we get into the nitty gritty of the services and offerings that Fidelity Digital Assets has, I think it's worth maintaining that higher um, vantage point look. You guys, from your very beginning, as you alluded to, like to take intelligent risks and not follow the crowd. To what degree is Fidelity Digital Assets a opportunity to swing at bat and, and try something as opposed to building a strong, formidable business? Look, I, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I think we're, we're dead serious about being a significant player in this business, but I do think, and we're starting to see this uh, as the market evolves, uh, there is a benefit in being first and being a little bit ahead of the market. I think we've learned things even in the past 12 to 18 months, uh, just you know, having that commercial mindset, building this business and having to say, we have to wake up every day and, and generate revenue and value for clients. It forces you to really think about strategy in a way that if we were just observing and sitting on the sidelines and experimenting, I don't think we would have had the same opportunity. So I think in this case, it's very much about building a strong core business and driving that forward. But with every day that passes, we're seeing new opportunities to bring value to the ecosystem and figure out ways to bring more clients into the ecosystem. And that's been um, really exciting and in many ways validating as we wait for the, uh, you know, the, the revenue to pick up and the commercial activity. Um, and those are things I don't think we would have seen had we been waiting on the sidelines and deciding, okay, is now the time to jump in. How much of it is a mix of trying to lure in current market participants who already have a custodian um, in the cryptocurrency market, maybe a BitGo or Coinbase and, and, and uh, bringing them onto Fidelity's platform versus trying to convince investors and traders who aren't in this market to, to invest and trade? Yeah, look, I'd say right now it's both. I mean, there are definitely competitive situations that we're, uh, that we're looking at. I think that over the long term, the value that we bring is really the, going back to this bridge comment earlier, uh, the fact that we understand the requirements of sophisticated institutions and we can bring capabilities and ways of interacting with the ecosystem that are familiar to them from other asset classes. Is so it 50-50? 60-40? I'd say it's probably 60-40 in favor of new types of clients. Interesting. Yeah. What do those conversations look like with the folks who are not already invested in crypto? Are you selling them on the idea of digital gold, on a hedge, on the investment thesis? Yeah. I mean, I can't say we're selling them on those sorts of things. I mean, I think by the time most, most of these institutions get to us, they've spent they have a fair a bit of time thinking about their thesis, right? And I think... You know, we were talking earlier that, you know, we tend to be very impatient in the space. You know, crypto has been around or Bitcoin has been around um, since the white paper. And, uh, you know, people live and die by the price. And, you know, is this the beginning? Is this the end? But over the arc of financial product cycles on Wall Street, it takes a long time, right? Credit derivatives were invented in the late 90s, but no one really knew about them until, you know, the, the financial uh, calamity in 2008. Um, and so I think that you know, there's a lot of work being quietly done behind the scenes. In some ways, we reinforce people's theses around why they want to invest in the space. In some cases, it looks like a venture bet. In some cases, it looks like an asset allocation play. We're seeing more clients that are, you know, doing the math and saying, if I allocate a little bit to, to Bitcoin, uh, that helps my risk-adjusted return. Uh, we're seeing people that pursue the, the view on digital gold. There are some people that are trying to correlate uh, network activity and wallet activity with price. And so we're starting to see this interesting 
uh, uh, dispersion of different ways that people think about the asset class, which we think is healthy. It's not monolithic. It's not every client saying, I think this is digital gold and gold is my, my benchmark. And we think that's healthy. And so part of what we do is we, um, we help uh, provide our own insight uh, to affirm their theses. And then we obviously bring um, the capabilities and the trust and everything we're doing to ensure them that we would be a, a good service provider. Mm -hmm. What is the largest client that you have? What are they, are they a macro fund? Are they something else? Are they an exchange? Good question. Uh, we have a large family office. We have a large macro fund that has allocated to crypto. Uh, we have a number of smaller crypto dedicated funds. Um, we started to see interest from traditional allocators um, who manage portfolios of other assets uh, that we're talking to. So we've seen in the course of, you know, when we started this and we decided to go institutional in early 2018, uh, it was primarily crypto funds and I would say quite uh, early hedge funds and other you know, folks like that. And we've seen a steady maturation and diversity in terms of the types of clients we're, we're talking to. We recently saw a Bloomberg report that, yes. yes. Yeah. It was today or yesterday? Uh, like 70% of, or 70 crypto funds. 70 funds have closed in the yeah. long tail probably. So maybe not necessarily clients that would have gotten, gotten by your uh, KYC or, or application standards, but. With, with many of those types of funds shutting down, is that bullish, bearish for Fidelity? Well, I guess in the short term it's bearish if those folks were potentially customers. But I also say like, in, you know, with the, uh, in many cases there was a, whether it was you know, the retail push in late 17 or some of these nascent funds forming and then closing in the span of 18 months, it's just your classic early stage um, Will they make it or not? I mean, the analog back in the days of the internet were the startups that started went out of business that no one remembers. So I think that some of the stuff in a way is healthy, but we don't really focus on that as much as we focus on the forward and the new business that's coming in. And again, we really think that the diversity of the types of clients we're talking to and why they're interested in the space is a better leading indicator of interest than the ebb and flow of um, you know, early stage crypto funds. What to what degree does Fidelity Digital Assets operate in a, a vacuum or not in terms of, and I think we, we've talked about this before, how something, you know, when people think about Fidelity, they think about, you know, now zero fee trading, congratulations. Um, but what's really, what's really there is a massive wholesale 401k uh, business. Um, to what degree are you working with FAs, the, the folks pushing the wholesale 401k business and others to uh, bring in new types of clients that the Coinbase's and, and Bitcos of the world could never interface with. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, part of the Fidelity Innovation model is uh, establishing new businesses, separately funding them and giving them the runway to actually go out and, and execute, right? You know, the, the challenge with innovating in large institutions is that these businesses are huge, they're monolithic, multi-billion dollar businesses, tens of thousands of clients, when you're talking about something that's as early stage and has more venture-esque characteristics than some of our traditional businesses, we are funded and operate as an independent organization. Every client that we've onboarded or that's in our pipeline are largely clients that we have originated ourselves. We will start to move into how do we leverage the other fidelity channels to do that. But, but right that's now, a double-edged sword though, right? Because when people think about the value proposition of fidelity in the cryptocurrency market, 
they think about the assurance of the massive firm that manages or oversees $7.2 trillion. But they are two different legal entities. So as a crypto client, do I have the same assurances of um, Abigail Johnson being behind me as the 401k clients, the wholesale 401k clients, or the brokerage clients, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so look, I would say that the firm is uh, absolutely committed to what we're doing. Um, that manifests itself by the money we're spending to build this business, by the support we've gotten from our cybersecurity organization, as an example, which alone probably has you know, 10 times as many employees as um, you know, a mid-sized crypto startup. Um, and these are folks that defend and protect the broader organization every day and have decades of, of expertise. The folks that uh, handle compliance for you know, uh, millions of retail customers, all of that DNA and the expertise we have as an organization is part of our business. And then we bulwark that with capital in the organization, insurance, and other things. So you know, we don't have many clients coming to us saying, um, is Fidelity committed to this? I think by virtue of what we've done, the people we've hired, um, the service we've developed, it's very clear that you know, the, the Fidelity institutional uh, fingerprints are all over our business. Mm -hmm. And that's how the clients are reacting. Correct. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the, the politics around launching a new type of business like this. When you came on board in January 2018, were there any frictions from the traditional business, which you say now are completely behind you and supporting you? To be honest, I mean, I don't have a long answer, no. And the answer is no. There was, there was almost no friction, again, because the, the innovation model at Fidelity is that you incubate these things and develop them and over time decide at some level of maturity how do they federate with the rest of the organization. Um, it wasn't like the innovation, on, uh, innovation model on Wall Street in the late 90s with the web where certain organizations would set up competing entities to leverage the web to compete against traditional businesses. That's not the model we have. The model we have is you, know, you plant an acorn, it starts to grow, it starts to look like something interesting, and then you figure out over time where does that sit. It could remain independent or it could be federated with some of the other businesses. We're not at that point yet. It's still very early. Aside from me blowing the lid off the whole thing, what was the toughest part of this journey? <laughs> so, I, I, it's actually a funny story because I, I still, it makes me laugh. So we, uh, you know, we announced uh, the business in October of 18, and I think at the time we said we'd be live in uh, uh, January. Early, early 19. And in fact, we had our first client on the platform before year end. And it was really funny because we were getting calls from people like, um, are you guys going to issue a press release that you're live? They're like, no, we told you in October we'd be live. And, you know, it, <laughs> And to this, I think even as, as recently as a few months ago, people were like, are these guys live? And I feel like we need to have like a plane flying over Loma Hat. Like, we are live. Well, I think um, people are confused about whether or not you're live, what type of assets you guys are actually, actually have available on, on the platform, the extent or the, the, the depth of the execution business. Um, you know, I was on stage with Christine Sandler at um, Security Traders Association. She's in the audience. And I called you guys a broker-dealer. And you stopped me in my tracks and said, not, not necessarily. Or a, a prime broker. We are not a prime broker. We're not a broker-dealer. Um, so sorry. So, yeah. what, so let's clear the air. Got it. OK. So on the execution You side, are live. We are live, unequivocally live. Um, yeah, so what we offer now is we offer custody. Um, we also offer something that we think is pretty unique and that has really resonated with traditional institutions, which is what we would call execution services, right? So 
The way to think about this is for a traditional investor, let's say in a foreign exchange or in equities, you go to a screen, you put an order in for Apple, and within a, a matter of milliseconds, you get the best bidder offer across literally now dozens of exchanges and ATSs in the US, and you can execute on screen. It's very simple. It doesn't work that way in crypto, right? You're an institution, you want to trade some semblance of best price, you need to open up accounts at multiple exchanges, fund those accounts, monitor different screens, figure out where you're going to execute, and then reallocate capital or Bitcoin depending on uh, you know, what your next trades might be. And so what we've tried to do is bring an old uh, traditional form factor where a client can sit down in front of our interface, they can put it in an order, we have competing market makers and exchanges, we effectively return the best bidder offer to the client, they execute on the screen, they don't need to know who the liquidity provider is, we manage the settlement between the client and the LP, and that is a very familiar, comfortable way for traditional investors to interact with markets. And you have exchanges now in addition to electronic trading firms? Uh, we will have our first exchange onboarded hopefully in January. Mm -hmm. Which one is that? Not going to say. Let's talk about the custody business now. We talked about execution services. I mean, that's fairly straightforward, I think. And there's not a lot of it competition yep. outside of maybe Tagomi, um, which has been acquired by Coinbase. So you <laughs> probably don't have to worry about them at this point. Um, walk us through custody, right? Because that's the one that at this point, I mean, if I get another press release of a firm launching a custody offer, I'm going to jump off onto Fourth Street because, uh, you know, how many do we need? How many can the market sustain? I think the way to think about it is not necessarily how many custodians do you need. It's custody is a, a basic uh, function requirement in the space. It is the building block for other things, right? So these other firms are launching custodians only to well, then I, go I do know, something else. What I would say is I don't think we view custody as being the only value-added solution we can provide to clients. So what's next? Well, it's execution services. I think, again, you come back to the market structure of crypto. You talk about having to pre-fund everything. We'll start to look at ways to facilitate uh, you know, uh, traditional prime services for clients, bringing these paradigms that they're very familiar with in other asset classes into this asset class. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. But again, I think you, know, you have to think about, again, if you're talking about traditional investors who have decided to allocate to this asset class, they're not necessarily concerned about the second and third order functionality. They just want to know that they can store their digital assets in a safe place with an institution they trust, with the right controls around who gets to move the assets, and some ability to execute at a price which they think is fair. It's that simple. But right now, you still have to face the competition, even if there is this you know, uh, long-term outlook of how the business will 100%. develop. Um, with some firms coming online with new fangled technologies like MPC, which I couldn't even begin to ex explain or understand. And uh, I heard through the rumor mill that BACT is giving zero fees for Galaxy and, and Togomi. In the face of that and Anchorage and all of these other firms coming online, how do you defend your turf? Yeah, so, I mean, it's an element of, you know, you're making a bet with us that we've taken this institutional capability on their asset classes. We've brought that to, to digital assets. So without get, you know, boring the audience, it's everything from uh, how a client can affect transactions on our platform, who is authorized to do them, what are the control hierarchies that the client can establish themselves based on their business, and then obviously mirroring that into our business in terms of how we, we process transactions. Um, there clearly is a, a strong linkage between the custody services and trade execution. We've seen lots of customers fund in cash and buy their first uh, Bitcoin on our platform. Um, very seamless. 
we have done a significant amount of work in terms of getting third-party audits of our controls and our, our security framework, um, which resonates very well, again, with more traditional investors. And I think that uh, approach to safety and soundness and looking like an institution facing off against an institution is effectively how we're playing. And you know, there are gonna be clients that um, that does not appeal to them and they're gonna look at other factors, whether it's some sexy underlying technology or fees and, and that's fine. Um, this is not a zero sum game just yet. We are still very early in this space. When you have those conversations with clients, um, when, you, when you look back, what was, what might have been the toughest negotiation that didn't maybe work out? How did you try to well, convince look, them otherwise? All, all I'll say is that you know, we've spoken to a lot of people that, um, uh, that are very price sensitive. Um, and several of them uh, either changed their mind or came back. What were they not satisfied with from the other providers? I, I couldn't tell you. I think it was the sense that- Were they, they running look, back? Or? We are providing a white glove service. We spent a significant amount of time and effort building it. It's first in class, best in class. Um, and I think people recognize that. And, um, you know, um, there is value in what we do. And I, I, all I would say is that I think competitively they have recognized that. And that's good. It's definitely good for you, yes. Let's talk a little bit about you, Tom. Before we turn on the mics, we talked about your time at Goldman and how people have, articles have, described you as not the typical Goldman person, mm -hmm. and you believe that to be true. Yeah. yeah. I, Talk us a little bit about <laughs> your, your time there, what you did. No, so I, I came to Goldman a little bit later in my career, and um, it was, uh, as someone who sort of came from outside the industry, I was sort of like, wow, what is this place gonna be like? You know, because I had the same, uh, maybe external, perception that a lot of people do just based on what you read in the press and such. And it was the, it would, you know, by far was an uh, incredible place to work. I was there for 17 years, much, much longer than maybe I thought I would be. And uh, incredibly collegial driven uh, commercial environment. And um, I don't know, I just, I am who I am, you know? Um, and uh, I'm easy to get along with. <laughs> I think I do an okay job and that, you know, that worked for me. So what were you doing there? So I was part of the uh, strategic investments team in the securities division. And um, we, uh, when I left, uh, I think the team had probably gone up to about a billion dollars in uh, mostly FinTech investments on balance sheet. And I think what's kind of interesting is we did a lot of market structure investing. So, you know, IHS Market, which is now a public company that started as a startup where, you know, Lance and Kevin and the team we're effectively collecting CDS pricing data from banks and offering to uh, you know, synthesize that, normalize it, and give them marks back. And that created this flywheel of everyone then coming to market wanting to buy the data. But initially, it was more like um, we just need, the banks need a service to price these things end of day, and that became a business. TradeWeb was another one. You know, sure, you, they just IPO'd. Yep, how do you facilitate more interactions between uh, a salesperson and their client in a way that allows the salesperson to do more business? And, you know, that was a great 15, 20 year story, but it was all things around market structure. We started exchanges, trading platforms. And the one thing that I, I constantly keep in mind when I think about this space is it takes time. And the best technology doesn't always win. There's a social aspect to this in terms of creating marketplaces that you have to be patient and you have to create the right incentive structures and fora for people to come together and create value. 
And we saw this time and time again. For everything that we invested in that was successful, you know, some very successful exchanges, a trade web, there were many companies you've never heard of that failed. They may have had great technology, but they were not able to organize the industry in a way to actually move things forward. And I think to some degree, that's what we're all trying to do in this space, which is how do you create um, those sorts of preconditions that invite more people into the market. Um, you know, we're doing that as Fidelity Digital Assets. We're having constant discussions with other folks in the ecosystem about how we can improve the market structure and create, uh, I wouldn't call them utilities, but capabilities that in order to the benefit of everyone in the space and make things better for institutions, because on a five to 10 year view, that's what's gonna drive you know, adoption at scale in the space. It's not gonna be a closed universe of crypto native types, you know, transacting amongst themselves. When you look at the market structure, right? I mean, you can't necessarily plug and play what works in equities, what works in fixed income or commodities and, and plug it into the crypto world. But when you look back at your time in the securities division at Goldman Sachs, what do you think during that maturation period the crypto world can learn now? I would say for everyone who's you know, living this like we are, it takes time, right? So I think that success is not necessarily measured in weeks and months, it's probably months to years. Uh, and being prepared for that, whether it's you know as a startup, the capital you raise, or how you think about your strategy, um, I think that is uh, is important. I also think there's a recognition that as much as we want all of the newfangled aspects of what the technology brings, you know, you still kind of need to put a little bit of a traditional wrapper around that to get. What do you mean by that? You know, I mean a classic example, right? The nature of digital assets is they're self-sovereign; you can self-custody. So why should there even be a custodian, right? Well, there should be a custodian for a number of reasons. A custodian provides lots of services other than just safekeeping keys. Um, and um, it's also, in some cases, what regulations require or what uh, customers choose, right? And so I think that it's really finding ways to, to leverage the, the traditional and the familiar in order to bring new things to a certain group of folks that, at least in the early days, is gonna be really important about affecting this transition. And then one day we'll wake up and um, you know, folks will be much more uh, uh, comfortable with this. They'll have better developed theses around these investments. They'll demand different types of services. But it is, you know, I don't want to keep using this bridge analogy, but I think you just can't completely abandon some of these artifacts of traditional finance if you want this new thing to be successful. When the block first launched, when we were in our infancy in October 2018, it was a big month for us because you guys announced Aerosex came online. I think there were a few others that made similar announcements, these institutional forces at that time backed, right? They were supposed to launch in December and they never did. Um, but it was a big moment in terms of the institutionalization of the market. And I think a lot of people thought it'd be a panacea for market structure and for price, and it necessarily wasn't. And it speaks to your point about how things don't necessarily happen overnight. As my grandmother said, Rome wasn't built in a day, but there are still pain points, and there are a lot of pain points. What are the ones that Fidelity can't fix right now? Can't, we can't fix. Look, I think uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think if, uh, if part of your thesis around broader adoption of these assets in the institutional realm involves funds, which it does, right? Different ways for folks to access or get exposure to the space. You know, the underlying liquidity in, in the markets right now would not support, you know, billions of dollars of new capital coming into Bitcoin as an example, right? So there's a little bit of a chicken and egg, and in fact, 
um, a lot of institutions would, would think, you know, quite frankly, think about that as a, uh, as a factor as to whether they're going to allocate in the first place, right? Which is, uh, if I buy 100 million of Bitcoin over the course of a few days, how badly will I move the market? Uh, if I need to liquidate quickly, what will that look like? Um, so I still think from a liquidity standpoint, there are, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So what happens when a client comes to you with an order? Has anyone even come to you with an order anywhere close to that size? No, no. <laughs> what if they did? Uh, a fraction. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, look, that's up to them. We don't, we, we don't facilitate the trading. They're not giving us the order, and we're not putting it into the market. We provide them with the tools to assess the market, but it's entirely up to them in terms of the size of their orders, how frequently they place those orders in the market. I think our, our hope and intention is over time that we can provide better tools to do that, you know, trading algorithms and other things. But um, that's a great question. I mean, you know, for the clients that have executed on our platform reasonably sized orders, um, you know, they clearly chunk them up into smaller sizes. They may not execute all of those orders in a day. Um, uh, I wouldn't say it's a black art, but, you know, they have to be, you know, the, the market's quite volatile. They have to, you know, have a view on when they want to execute. The interesting thing to me of writing about this space is the power, and I think this goes unnoticed, of market-making firms and electronic over-the-counter traders like Jump, Jane Street. Many of these firms are the companies that are getting all of this inbound retail flow, not the exchanges. You haven't onboarded an exchange yet. You think about Tagomi, the majority of their flow is going to OTC or electronic trading firms. Is that the future of this market? Are the exchanges going to be left in the dust or will the market makers reign supreme? It's a great question. Um, it's one that we think about a lot. I, I think it's too early to tell. I mean, I think, um, and there are probably folks in the audience that, that are more current on institutional equities than I am, but look, for a long time you had uh, central limit order book displayed liquidity and equities, but you still had folks facilitating large orders OTC. Right, and then um, writing the trades to the tape. And so you have this hybrid model. And it, it still exists to some day. My guess is that uh, listed equities have become more electronic and maybe less high touch or less high value uh, block trading. But um, I don't know, there's something in me that says at some point it, become, it looks more like a central limit order book, but that's just more of a, a thesis as opposed to something that's supported in, um, in fact and, and careful observation. I don't know. For the non-market structure walks among us, break that down. Central Limit Order Book is, you know, buyers and sellers displayed price, depth of book, uh, execute on the screen. Um, and then OTC would be, obviously, uh, trades that are not uh, publicized, negotiated privately. Um, uh, I wouldn't say not a competitive market, but perhaps not as competitive as having lots of market makers uh, filling out a, a book on an exchange. Okay, fair enough. You can't, you know, we're not going to pull out our crystal ball, but to put the question differently, why today is Fidelity routing to market makers and not exchanges? That's a great question. Are the market makers just easier to work with? No, I mean, I think, look, given who our clients are, other institutions they trade in larger size, I think they're, right now there's probably better size liquidity with um, OTC providers than what's displayed in an order book. That could change. Why do, you think we're, why do you think the market structure is in that place right now? What are the exchanges doing wrong, maybe? I don't know if they're doing anything wrong. I mean, some of these exchanges are generating you know, significant volume, and I don't know if there's public data around how much the OTC desks trade versus a typical exchange in a day, but you know, some of these exchanges are trading very large size. Um, I don't think they're doing anything wrong. 
I think that it's kind of a preferred habitat thing. If you're a certain type of investor, uh, you may be more attracted to trading in an exchange. If you're another type of investor, you may be more interested in sourcing size liquidity over the counter. Right? That's a construct that exists in lots of markets. Still exists in foreign exchange to some degree today. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and a lot of what's going on in crypto is being modeled off of the FX market. Um, when you think about the next five to 10 years for Fidelity digital assets, what does it look like? Yeah. So I think the first thing I would say is, you know, we, we and I don't want to use the term bet, but we've, we've, we're focused intently on the technology and the types of assets that it can support. So our thinking is not strictly limited to the current set of digital assets or Bitcoin for that matter. When you think about an organization like Fidelity and you think about, for example, um, the types of transactions we intermediate today, um, there are certain asset classes that are probably reasonably well suited to, to be tokenized and, and you know, manifest ownership on a blockchain. Lots of alternative assets. Um, increasingly, that's an asset class that um, our clients are interested in, they already own. And so there are interesting ways to think about traditional instruments and, uh, and products in a blockchain format for purposes of either um, you know, more efficient distribution, automating certain types of corporate actions or other things, or even perhaps broadening um, the number of folks that are able to buy uh, certain types of investments that only uh, qualified purchasers, institutions, and accredited investors could buy, can buy. And um, you know, you're seeing this, if you look at you know, the public equity markets versus what's issued privately, there's been a slow and steady move uh, for companies staying private longer private securities issuance. And that's an interesting asset class when you think about the power of the technology. So I think that we'll, number one, be very customer-led uh, in terms of their demands. Number two, think about our existing business and where we can leverage some of our capabilities and things other than the set of digital assets we have today. And most of all, make sure that we have the flexibility as an organization to pivot and course correct given how new and nascent these markets are. And that might put you directly in the sights of your crosstown fellow crypto firm circle. I don't know. Too early to tell. Sure. Um, good answer. Um, perfect non-committal answer. I, I mean, I'm sure if Jeremy was here, he would, he would say something very similar. Um, so what does that, I mean, where do you see the first opportunity from, from that perspective in tokenizing assets that are a liquid? We often think about fixed income assets as... Yeah, I mean, you're starting to see it. I mean, I'm, I'm observing the same things you are. I mean, there, there have been, uh, you know, it seems like real estate, uh, private real estate is an area of focus. Um, you know, there are a number of banks thinking about bringing private instruments to market as tokens. Um, it's a slow, I, I think the entire stock of outstanding security tokens, sort of non-ICO stuff is probably less than $2 billion, so it's still really tiny. Um, but I, I think what, you know, you don't observe is that, again, for institutions, it takes time to again, understand, develop a thesis, check the box in terms of safety and soundness, regulatory compliance, other things. So there's a lot that's happening under the waterline that I think, you know, I wouldn't bet on this, but like, you know, I think we wake up one day and these things are hap happening faster than, than we think, right? It just takes time. And so we're starting to see a little bit of that. I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's a, a trickle that hasn't yet become a wave, but it's something we're watching carefully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, how do you position yourself for that? Are you hiring now to bring on people who can look at those opportunities? No, I mean, we have the people that can look at the opportunities. I mean, the benefit of having been in the space since 2015 is we've had, call it, 
folks with crypto experience, uh, you know, back then they'd been in the ecosystem for a couple of years, are now, you know, pretty seasoned. And, um, and so, you know, part of what we do is obviously keep the business running, but we devote a portion of our resource, both product and technical, to think about prototyping and proof of concept and um, understanding how we can play as some of these things start to move forward. And then from a biz dev standpoint, we're very engaged with folks that are involved in the space and, and really just making sure we're monitoring what's happening and, and you know, when it makes commercial sense to do so to actually play a more active role in that, in that part of the ecosystem. But a lot of those new frontiers don't necessarily fall under Fidelity digital assets, they're... Well, I think in the long term for any financial institution, I mean, if you believe in this, the, you know, the blockchain or distributed ledgers as being a new financial fabric or whatever you want to call it, putting aside Bitcoin and ETH and stuff. Like, I think you have to, if you're bought into that, I think you have to think about the eventuality that someday you wake up and your client says, well, okay, I own Apple stock, I own Bitcoin, uh, I own this thing. Like, why can't I own a tokenized traditional asset in the same portfolio. Like, well, you can because we have the capabilities to support that and it should be completely agnostic to you when you pull up your portfolio and you say, okay, you know, what's my total outstanding? You know, maybe there's some, some risk analysis being done. It shouldn't be the case that the stuff that exists on a blockchain sits over here and everything else you own sits over here, mm -hmm. right? But what's the benefit in your opinion? Not to promote our lovely sponsor Cash App, uh, who's... Uh, a service by Square, which is run by Jack Dorsey, and they've done a lot in the crypto market. Um, I saw someone, I forget who it was, it was some crypto show. Did you to say that? No, I wasn't. I totally wasn't. A million Tron. Is that going to be edited A million out too? Tron. No, it won't. So someone, some crypto charlatan on Twitter said, if, if you really care about the digitization, tokenization, cryptoization of the market, why don't you... Uh, put Square's stock on the blockchain. And from my perspective, I don't understand the, the value out of that. The, cap, the US capital markets are some of the most liquid in the world. What benefit do I have as a person looking to buy 10 shares of Square, that being on a blockchain, yeah, okay. no, how do I That's a great benefit? question. I, I don't, you know, and I, I've thought this for a long time, I'm not sure that uh, public securities and things that currently trade on exchanges are ripe for tokenization. I think that, um, the market infrastructure is very well developed. You've got central clearinghouses, DTC. They do a very good job of running the markets and affecting settlement. I think that where you see the application of the technologies and illiquid assets, we're increasingly becoming a larger percentage of the overall pie of financial assets that, that folks invest in. And I think that's a mark that so many people in the crypto market don't understand necessarily, that you don't need to tokenize Apple because you can buy a the incremental benefit would be. massive position of it without moving the market and tons of places to buy and sell. Let's focus a little bit about, you said looking forward, you'd consider listing new assets. It's just Bitcoin right now that you can buy and sell and uh, custody. Not Ethereum, why? We, you know, we've done a lot of work on Ethereum. Um, we intend to support it uh, in the new year. Um, we're very led by our clients. And again, coming back to the fact that, you know, we're speaking to a lot of traditional institutions, Bitcoin is sort of like the gateway product, right? It's a thing that's got the, you know, perhaps the longest track record, the most observable data points across multiple exchanges around price activity. Its opponents aren't going out to North Korea and... <laughs> <laughs> that too. Um, and so I think for us, like, we're just very client-led. And I think that our clients, you know, are, are consistently and primarily interested in... Bitcoin right now. 
So is there, but are there concerns around other things that are unique to Ethereum, the upcoming transition? I mean, there might be, but again, I think, you know, um, I think you just have to recognize that, you know, as an individual, you know, and I'm sure you did this and I did this back in the day, I found out what Bitcoin was, I thought it was cool, I downloaded a wallet and I bought some. Right? Institutions don't act that way. It takes them a time. You know, we did the survey. I think you and I may have yep. spoken about this a while ago. But like, you know, the top three reasons why institutions were reluctant to get into the space. One is price volatility. Mm -hmm. The other one was lack of regulatory clarity. And the third one, interestingly, was lack of a track record. Right? Meaning, like, how do I know that if I buy this thing, it's going to be around tomorrow? Like, what, what, what indicia of durability or longevity do I have based on the fact that the history of this asset is... 10 years old. I think many of these things solve themselves with time. But you know, there are clients we're talking to now that have been thinking and looking at the space for years, over a year, not short months. So um, it's literally that type of progression. There's a lot, there, there are things happening that are not necessarily observable unless you're speaking to these clients on a regular basis. Will there ever be a wave of institutionalization? Well, like suddenly, you know, holders of $5 trillion in assets decide to pound the market with buy orders. <laughs> D. Shaw and, and the like come in and all. I don't, I, don't know if it's a, I, don't, I don't know if it's a wave. It might be a swell. I mean, what's pick, pick a, <laughs> another, <laughs> another word that's not a wave. Um, I think it's a steady, you know, maybe it's, uh, uh, maybe it's more like a flood than a wave. Maybe it's just something that just builds and builds and builds. I don't know. Tom, thank you so much. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate the time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer -peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app. So be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you